We're glad you're here today. My name is Gary Weber. I'm the pastor at Southside. And uh, if you're a guest, we want to say a special welcome to you. We're so uh, glad you could worship with us today. And you picked a great Sunday because we are starting a brand new series. And guess what the subject is? That's right. How did you know? (laughs) We are starting a series on love. And maybe you're coming in and you're thinking to yourselves that question that that great contemporary theologian has often asked, what's love got to do with it, right? (laughs) From the lips of Tina Turner. Uh, We are going to take a look at that because uh, according to Jesus, love has everything to do with it. In fact, when Jesus was asked at one point in his ministry, as people began to pick up on the fact that Jesus' teachings were different than everything or anything they'd ever heard, uh, one person asked Jesus, hey, would you just summarize the law for us? Would you just give us, like, if you could give us the elevator speech for what religion should be about, how we can relate to God, would you give that to us? And this is what Jesus said, and you can find this in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 22. We're actually going to look at this for the next several weeks. It's so famous that it actually has a name. These verses are called the Great Commandment. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. He said, love the Lord your God, With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he said, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said the most amazing thing. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, before we just rush past that, think about what Jesus just said. The people who were listening to Jesus speak were Jewish people. For hundreds and thousands of years, they had had the law of Moses. They had been experts in the law. And not only were there 10 commandments, but according to the Mosaic law, there were 613 commandments. And the whole idea of the Jewish faith and Jewish religion was, let's teach the commandments of God. Let's set up guardrails around them so people can live by the law. Let's teach people how to live by the law. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, all that... I can summarize it for you in two statements. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. Like if you do that, everything that you've spent hundreds of years putting together is, can be summarized. All of it just hangs on those two things. If you do those two things, everything else just falls into place. And what he began right that, at that moment was a revolution in how we relate to God. Jesus opened the door for us to see God in a different way. Nobody had ever looked at God this way. Because relating to God was no longer about what you just knew. Knowing God wasn't about knowledge, some secret knowledge that you had to acquire or how much you knew or how much you learned or how, what rabbi you studied with. It wasn't about knowledge. It wasn't even about rules anymore. These are all the rules and you keep these rules the best you can or, or, or you're going to be in trouble with God. It wasn't, about, it wasn't about knowledge. It wasn't about rules. And it wasn't about rituals or routines. It wasn't about when you showed up to temple and the way you offered your sacrifices. Jesus said, no, no, no. All of it can be summarized Summarized like this, just love God and love people. Now, Jesus didn't just pull this out of the air. He actually pulled it from the Old Testament. When he said love God, all his audience knew that Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall, and this should sound familiar, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus said, that's it. There it is, just Love God. And then the second part, love your neighbor as yourself, he actually pulled from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where God said through Moses, do not seek revenge 
or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so during this series uh, that we're calling Love Well, we're going to challenge you to do something. We're going to challenge you to love God and love people. Because Jesus said everything about faith, everything about religion, everything about relating to God hinges on those two commandments. All of it comes back to that idea of loving God and loving people. And if, if everything in the Bible, if everything God expects, to us, expects from us comes back to this idea of loving him and loving others well, isn't it important that we do know how to love well? So every week we're going to look at different relationships and how those relationships are actually an opportunity for us to experience God's love and to express God's love in a deeper capacity. From the most intimate relationships we have, those of our immediate family, if you're married, your spouse, your kids, your parents, those from our immediate family to that extended family that you're going to have to go visit at Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, and you're already trying to think, is there any way we can get out of that, those, that part of the family? all the way to the people that you live around that are in your neighborhood, even all the way to the edges to the people that we don't know at all, we don't even know they exist, even to the people that we would say are our enemies. We're going to talk every week about a different relationship and how that relationship offers us, it gives us an opportunity to love God. Now this sounds so simple. When you start talking about a series on love, it sounds simple, but it is not easy. Because the kind of love that Jesus was talking about, the kind of love that Jesus expected of us, is not a flippant invitation to some warm, fuzzy, Hollywood, romantic comedy kind of love. That's not what he's talking about. But in our minds and in our culture, that's the first thing that comes up. But what Jesus was talking about is something difficult, something hard, something that honestly may even be dangerous. Jesus' invitation to love him, to love God and to love others, is not something that we should take, take a look at and just quickly move past. Because this is the essence of everything that Jesus taught. In fact, after Jesus said this, and he continued to teach his disciples, towards the end of his ministry, he had his disciples alone in an upper room. And Jesus had been communicating to them over and over again how important it was to love. And he was teaching them through parables and teaching them all these ways. Finally, he gets them in the upper room and he has the opportunity to give them a living example of what he's talking about. And so when they're in the upper room, uh, there's no servant there to wash their feet, which would have been the custom of the day. So Jesus gets a bowl of water and a towel and he takes off his outer garment and ties a towel around his waist. And he kneels down and he begins to wash the feet of all the disciples. All of them, even Judas, who he knows is about to betray him. He washes all their feet. Then when he finishes, he looks at the disciples and he says, Hey, you see what I've done for you? That's what I want you to do for other people. This is what I've been talking about. As I have loved you, so you're also called to love other people. Now, what the disciples didn't know is that Jesus said, What I've done for you now, you do not understand, but soon you will. And what Jesus was talking about is not just the fact that he was going to kneel and wash their feet, but he was going to get out, walk out of that room, he was going to be arrested, and he was going to lay his life down on the cross for them as the ultimate example of his love for them. And he says to them, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Here's the commandment. I want you, I want you to love others the way I have loved you. The same way I have loved you, so you're to love other people. This is the commandment. This was a revolutionary idea when it came to religion and how to relate to God. 
People had thought about relating to God through the law. People had thought about relating to God through knowledge. People had thought about relating to God through religious ritual and routine. They had not considered the idea about relating to God by loving. This was a revolutionary idea. In fact, it was so revolutionary that that as John grew older... And as John outlived all the other disciples, he continued to teach the message of love to future generations. People who had not seen with their own eyes Jesus, but had heard the stories and began to believe. And so John wrote a letter to these, uh, to these young believers, and we have that letter in our Bible. It's the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at, uh, at beginning in verse 7. Because this idea is so different from what the religious establishment of their day had considered or thought that John is trying to explain it to them. And I think it's a good explanation to us today because our culture also, I believe, has a very different idea of what it means to love. So let's take a look at this. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Sounds just like what Jesus had said. Let us love one another. For love is from God. Now that's going to be critical in just a minute. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now that's a famous verse. You don't have to come to church very often to recognize that idea. But here's what was so incredibly radical for the people listening to this is that they had never considered the fact that God is love. Not that God can love, or not that God does love, but that God is love. He is the essence of love, John is saying in this passage of Scripture. Revolutionary idea. Totally, totally revamping his entire audience's idea of who God was and what God was doing. But it's important for us, I think, 2,000 years later, to ask ourselves, what does it mean that God is love? When we say love, what are we talking about? The theologian D.A. Carson wrote this. The love of God in our culture, so he's talking about the way we define love, has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. So what I take from what Carson says there is that we have to be really careful that when we say God is love and we talk about loving God and loving people, we need to understand, are we defining love the way culture defines love or are we defining love the way the Bible describes love, the way that God actually is? See, here's what happens. John said to us in a definition of love, if you want to know what love is, look to Jesus, understand that God is love. And our culture, even people who are not religion, religious, like this, don't they? Like you hear it among some people who, who will criticize religion and they'll say, well, I just believe in a God of love. That's, that's one of the things they, they like. I, I just believe in a, in a God of love. Which basically, when they say that, many times what they mean is a God who lets me do whatever I want to do. Right? I mean, that's, oh, come on. We, when you've said that, that's what you've meant too, right? So I just believe in a God of love. Here's what we've done, though, when we say that. John said God is love, but here's what our culture does. Our culture says love is God, and there's a difference, isn't there? Because as I define love, that becomes God. 
Uh, In his great book, uh, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this. Now listen to this quote. Because some of you, for some of you, this will explain your first marriage. Okay? I mean, this will explain broken relationships. This will explain a lot of things that you did in your life. And you look back on you like, how could I have been so stupid to have done that? Why did I do that? This will explain it. This quote right here. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. And so you get this warm, fuzzy feeling inside of you. And what do you think? Well, it must be God's will. I mean... Right? If it feels so good, it can't be wrong. Come on. And then you find yourself acting in ways that inevitably, maybe within just a few hours or maybe it's within just a few years, you look back and you regret the actions you took when you were, quote unquote, in love. Right? Come on now. Some of you are old enough. I know. And some of you, I know your stories. And and what happens is when we flip this from God is love To love is God, suddenly love or the feeling that we call love begins to control us as if it were God himself. And we will even say, well, God led me to do that. When in fact it was your emotions in the moment that led you to do that. Now here is one of the problems that I think our culture has. And it's a language problem when it comes to understanding love. Because basically in English, we have one word. We say love. But we use it in so many ways. You know, we say, well, very few people say, I love the Jaguars. <laughs> there are people who say it. And then other people, but then we turn around and say, you know, and I love my kids. Or I love my dog. Or I love Italian food. And I love my wife. I love my husband. And we use that word in a very broad way. But in the Greek language, actually, there are anywhere from four to six words in the Greek language that we translate as the one word, love. So I thought this, this analogy came to my attention. I thought it was perfect. So it would be like if you were to go into Starbucks, okay? If you were to go into Starbucks. And Starbucks sells what? Coffee, right. It's a coffee shop. So if you go into Starbucks, though, and you go into Starbucks and say, I want a coffee. The barista is going to look at you and is going to ask you a question. Well, would you like a cappuccino? Would you like a latte? Would you like an espresso? Would you like a macchiato? I mean, they're going to go on and on. Why? Because the word coffee at Starbucks is not specific enough. It's, it's a broad word, but it's not specific enough. In the Greek language, it's the same way. It's the same way with the word love. Now, I want to look at just four words that we tra- take out of Greek and translate as the word love, but I want to look at them in their original language because I think this is part of our problem of how we confuse what the Bible talks about as love and what we talk about as love. The first word that I want to look at is the word eros, Greek word for love, eros. We translate this. This is translated as love. This is where we get the word erotic. This is sexual, and I'll put it in quotes, love. Because we all know it's not really love. It's what? Lust, right? That's, that's really the better definition. This, this is what the Bible is describing. It's talking about chemistry. You know, it's this idea of a physical attraction. 
And, and it, it implies in it some, there's some beauty or physical attraction. Of course, we all know, or if you have, maybe some of you don't know this yet, but some of you will find out as you live longer, beauty and physical attraction begin to, what, fade with time, right? But what this love says is as long as you can meet my need for pleasure and my need for satisfaction, there's this chemistry, there's this feeling here, this erotic love. This, we translate this as love all the time. Now, here's where it gets to be a problem. Because... If for you or if people you know understand that sex is love, then what has happened? Ah, you see it? So if I don't understand what it means when we say that God is love and I flip that around and say that all love is God and then I confuse in my mind and equate sex with love, suddenly I have made sex God. But it gets worse, because let's, let's go on. Let's look at some of these other words. So storge. Storge is another Greek word that is used, uh, that we translate as love. But this is sort of the, this is the natural love that one has for a child or for a parent. This is basically another form of self-love. Because it's a love that says, I love you because you're mine. Okay? Now, d- don't get this wrong. This is not bad, but the reality is, I love, for many of you in here, I know your family. I know your kids. I love your kids. But I love my kids better than I love your kids. I mean, right? I'm just like you love your kids better than you love my kids. Now, there are times I'd be willing to trade with you and you'd be willing to trade with me. But why do I love them like that? Why is it that when a baby is born in a hospital nursery, they don't just put all the babies in the, in the, in the nursery and then moms can just pick whatever baby they want? I mean, just, you know, they all just go in a big pool, and then mom and dad go in, and I'll take that one. Why don't they do that? Because there's something about the fact that that baby is my baby. That child is mine. That parent, they're my parents. And so, so this storge love is a love that is a natural love that we have for family members. Now, here's what happens. If, if we confuse storge love uh, as, as love itself, then suddenly... Our child is love. And our child becomes God in our life. And you ever know, don't raise your hand, have you ever known anybody in family like that? Where, where I mean, serious, where the, the child is elevated to a position of deity? Or we do this. Our spouse is love. And now, is it bad to love your spouse? No, actually, we're going to talk about that in this series. We want you to love your spouse well. We want you to love your child well. The problem comes if we don't understand what we talk about when we mean love. Because we can end up elevating a person, we can end up elevating a thing to the position of love, and if we don't understand that God is love and all love is not God, that person becomes God in our life. Let's look at another one. One other here. This is the, uh, the word phileo. Uh, this is where the city of Philadelphia gets its name. The city of what? Brotherly love, that's right. So this is brotherly love or a love for a friend or community. So this is a higher form than eros because it's it's mutual satisfaction. There's a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of, hey, we need to do what's good for us. So it's definitely a higher form of love. It's more selfless than storge because you don't have to be related to me for me to feel phileo towards you, um, but it still primarily involves people who are like me. And what I mean by that is we feel phileo for people that we share something in common with. So maybe we all live in a community together. 
And so because we're from Jacksonville, we can commiserate together about the Jaguars, right? I mean, that's two pun. That's two today. I've got to be careful about that. I'll get, you know, the emails, I know. So, so but, but there's something about, there's something we have in common. Now, it could, it could look like patriotism, which is a good thing, right? So we, when we feel patriotic, and we, um, for many in this room who have served in our military, and, and, and we know people who have sacrificed their life, people are willing to sacrifice their life for phileo, for their love of country. Here's the problem, that if we're not careful, our country and our love of country, which is a good thing, can become God. Do you, do you see how that works? And so it's, it's beginning to understand where all these things fit and how they fit in the, appropriate, in the appropriate way. Now, when the Bible, when your English Bible has the word love in it, um, it does not use eros, it does not use storge, and it is not saying phileo. When your Bible is, is saying love, when your Bible translates the word love, your Bible is using the Greek word agape, And here's what the definition of agape is. A love that is not kindled by the merit or worth of its object. Now think about that for just a second. A love that is not kindled or merit merit the worth of its object. So this is a love that gives regardless of the response of its object. This is a love that says it doesn't matter how you treat me. I am going to agape you. You can spit in my face. You can call me names, you can, you can, you can even abuse me, but I have, I have an agape love for you. This is the kind of love it's talking about. This is a love that desires only the good of the one being loved, with nothing expected in return. So this is to say, I don't care if I get anything out of this relationship. I don't care if you have anything to give back to me. I am going to agape you. I'm going to love you. It's a consuming passion for the well-being of others. And when the Bible says, when John said, God is agape. God is agape. God is a selfless, self-sacrificing, giving love. And that love is not earned. That love cannot be earned by you. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to have it taken away from you. And he goes on and he says in verse 9, In this love, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So in another book that John also wrote, John uh, 3.16, John says this, For God so agape the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he sent. This is how God has demonstrated his love in our midst. He sent Jesus Christ into our midst to show us what it was like. And then he says in verse 10, this is love. Now here's the point where everybody's like, okay, here it is. You're going to tell me what this is. I need to know. If if this is not what I think it is, if it's not what Hollywood tells me it is, I need to understand what this love is. And here he says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So, so wait a minute here, John. What you're telling me is that when Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're telling me that, that doing that, the ability to do that, 
depends entirely on me first understanding that he loves me. Exactly. In other words, you can never fulfill Jesus' command to love God and love others if you first don't recognize that it is not your love for God that transforms you. It is God's love for you that transforms you. And he goes on from there and he says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so... This is, this is absolutely beautiful. D.A. Carson says that God's love is both the model and the incentive for our love. In other words, it's the model. When we, as human beings, and, and you don't need to read back far in history. You can just read the paper today to figure out that we don't really know how to do this, right? I mean, we can do eros. We can do storge. We can do phileo. We do not know how to do agape. We don't. You, just have, you don't even have to look outside of our own borders, at some of the hate-filled protests, and, and I don't care what side, just so much animosity and hatred. Nobody be, being willing to say, I'm going to love you no matter what you believe, even if I don't agree with you. You don't hear that. And so we don't know how to do that. And so what John is saying is that God has shown us how to do that in himself by giving his son. He has modeled it for us in Jesus. But not only is Jesus our model, he's also our incentive. Because if you have experienced that kind of love from God, it becomes an incentive for you to then turn around and love other people the way you've been loved. Therefore, if I have trouble loving somebody selflessly, the problem may be that I am not fully experiencing God's selfless love for me. Because if I were able to fully grasp what it is that Christ has done for me, there would be a difference in the way I look at how I love other people. So John goes on and he says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But then he says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God, but what you can see, John says, is the way people demonstrate a love that can only come from God to other people. You know, I, I, I get in conversations, I love apologetics. I love defending the faith. And, and one of the things that I think uh, people who are not Christians have the hardest time believing, uh, one of the defenses that to me is the strongest, but non-Christians have the hardest time believing, is that one of my solid proofs of evidence that God exists and that Jesus did what he said he did is when I see agape love demonstrated from one person to another person. I get a front row seat for that in my position all the time. And I see selfless, sacrificial love being demonstrated from somebody to somebody that they don't even know. And they would be willing to give. They'd be willing to give their time, their talent, their treasure. And I look at that and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless that person has experienced God's love and God's love is made manifest in their love to somebody else. And suddenly I'm like, there's God. I just saw him. I just saw him in that act of service. I just saw him in that act of kindness. I just saw him in that act of generosity. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. See how important that is? That you know and believe the love that God has for you. God is love. He says it again. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. 
so that we may have confidence that on the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. What is John saying there? He's saying when Jesus told us to do for others what he, had done, what he did for us, that's what it means. The way he was in the world, now that's how we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. There's no other way to do it. That's the only way we're able to have that kind of agape love. If anyone says, now listen to this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And if those verses don't disturb you, then either you have come to terms with every human being on the planet or you're not listening to what he's saying. If you can't love the people you can see, how can you love the God who you can't see? What, what John is basically saying is that loving God is loving other people. That loving other people is loving God. The two are linked When Jesus said, this is the first and the greatest commandment and the second commandment, love God and love people, what he's really saying is, you can't do one without the other. It's impossible. Because how we love God has a direct impact on our capacity to love other people. If I don't love God, I can't love other people. If I haven't received God's love for me, I don't have the capacity to love other people the way Jesus is commanding me to love them. And it's also true the other way around. How we love others is the most accurate reflection of how we truly love God. So basically, if you, if you want to know what the commandment is, this new commandment Jesus gave, a summary of the law, it's this. Love everyone always. Love everyone always. Your ex-husband That teacher who gives you a hard time who's so hateful. That neighbor who you've been in a feud with over a property line for decades. That uncle who abused you. That person who stole from you. I mean, this is hard. This is not Hollywood. This is not warm and fuzzy. This is a dangerous kind of love. This is a provocative kind of love. This is the only kind of love that actually has the power to change the world. And it is what our country is so desperate to see today. I believe there has never been a time in our nation's history, at least in my lifetime, where the church has not had a greater opportunity to shine the light and the love of Jesus Christ in our world. And it could not be simpler, not easy, but simpler, What do we need to do to display the love that God is calling us to have? We need to love everyone always. I don't care if they agree with you politically. I don't care if their lifestyle matches up with what you define as moral or immoral. It doesn't matter. There's no qualifications in this. Love everyone always. One of the ways that we're going to try to hold you accountable during this series is as you leave today, we hope you'll pick up one of these yard signs. And it just says basically that, love everyone always. We want to see these all over our city. 
in your yards. And, and two reasons. Number one, because, because we, want, we, we want to combat the vitriol and the hatred that is so prevalent in our world today by, by just reminding people of this simple truth, maybe even especially other Christians in our neighborhood. We want to remind them what we're called to do, to love everyone always. But second reason is because I want you to remember. And I want you to be held accountable. And if you put this in your yard by your driveway when you're pulling out right before you go get on two, uh, you know, 295 or do the loop, you need to remember. I'm called to love everyone always, even at the corner of Beach and University. Right? I mean, so it's a witness and it's a reminder for us. So I hope you'll pick those up as, as, you, as you leave today. Now, here's the truth. I can't, according to what John is saying, I can't love God. If I can't love him, I can't love other people. If I can't love other people, I can't love God. So here's the problem. There's a, there's a, there's a problem in my ability to even do what Jesus is commanding me to do. I have to first recognize I do not have the capacity to love like that. So let me draw a, 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 a diagram for you, and we're going to work on this every week. If this is yourself right here, what John is basically saying is that you by yourself do not have the capacity to agape. Now, you can eros, you can storge, you can phileo, but you can't agape. So what God has done is God has said, all right, I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you myself. God is love. God demonstrated his love by sending his son Jesus into the world. I'm going to give you myself. And here's what happens. As we receive the love of God, we're then able to let it flow through us to others. Now, others is a big category, right? I mean, that's a lot of people. Others includes my spouse. Others includes my kids. Others also include strangers, it includes friends and neighbors, it includes, it includes Muslims, it includes people who don't share my particular views on politics, it, imbued, it also includes people who aren't like me or who have wronged me. Now here's where the trick comes in, and this is where for us we have to begin to do some hard work. Anything in us that has trouble loving, so let's just say we have trouble loving right here. I don't know what the issue is. Maybe for you, it has to do with a particular kind of person. Maybe there's a trigger for you. And so you have trouble. You can't love people with addiction problems because you, you grew up in a house with that. And so the minute you hear about that, you begin to pull away. Maybe for you, it has a, maybe for you it's a racial issue. I mean, just be honest. Maybe, maybe there's a particular race uh, or creed of people, and you struggle with that. Here's what this tells me. If I have a problem here... It's reflective of a problem right here. Because if I have a problem, I can't forgive somebody in order to love them the way, I, the way God's called me to love them. It probably means that I haven't first fully embraced God's forgiveness for me. Every relationship problem you have is ultimately a problem in your relationship with God. And the reverse is also true. If there's something about the way you view God that is misinformed or misdirected, that manifests itself where? Out here in your relationships. And so as we learn how to love God, as we recognize how we love other people, we begin not only to increase our capacity to love others, but we also begin to increase our love for God. Every one of these red X's 
the Bible calls sin. Sin is what disrupts the flow of God's love in us and through us. I was uh, talking uh, a while back with a, a person who was describing for me a lot of relationship problems and uh, just going through a litany of relationships. Basically, every relationship was a disaster, every, every one of them. And uh, this person, as they're describing all these relational glitches and they're trying to figure out how to make it work, I, I'm realizing this is a mess. Like, I, I don't even know where to start in this because it's there's so many broken relationships. The person said something to me and a light went off. This person said, you know, really the problem is that I know that I, uh, that I don't deserve to be loved. And the light that went off for me in that moment is I know the problem. The problem is that you have not first experienced God's love in your life. The problem is that you don't understand how much God loves you. Not, not the you you want to be, not the you you wish you were, but the you that you actually are right now. That God loves you exactly like you are. So much so that he would send his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. That's how much he loved you. Not after you cleaned up, not after you got sober, not after you went back and repaired all the broken relationships, but God loves you just like that right now. See, the good news is that the gospel is God's supply of love that I need to be able to fulfill the commandment that he's called me to fulfill. That the gospel provides that for me. Here's what John said, just to remind you of verse 10. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he's loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when God says, love your neighbor as what? As yourself. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not pulling an Oprah Winfrey here, okay? He's not talking a self-help gospel. He is saying, you can love others because God has first loved you. That to recognize God's love for you, the value that God has placed on you, that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself has been loved by God. And once we grasp The way that God has loved us, it frees us and empowers us to love other people that way. So the secret to loving well is loving God. The secret to loving God is recognizing that he has first loved you. And the way you love other people, how well you love other people around you, will be a reflection back in your own heart and your life of God's love in your own life. So I'm going to challenge you for the next few weeks to take an inventory. Where are all the red X's in your life? Who are the people that represent those red X's? And rather than thinking of that as a problem to be avoided, what if that was God's invitation to say, if you enter into this, maybe I can expand your capacity to understand my love for you. Maybe not only can I bring healing to those broken relationships, but more importantly than that, maybe you will come to understand how much I love you more than you ever even imagined. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Our band is going to come and we're going to sing a song about God's deep love for us. And as we do, I just want to extend an invitation to you today um, to receive that love. Because nothing else I'm going to say over the next few weeks is going to make any sense if you haven't, don't first recognize that God loves you. He really, really loves you. 
Not with a warm, fuzzy Hollywood kind of love that's here today and gone tomorrow, but with an abiding love that says it doesn't matter what you've done, what you do, how you live, what you think, how you believe. My love for you is secured. My love for you has been demonstrated. Maybe today you would finally submit and say, that's what I want in me. I want to receive that love. The good news is it's there for the taking. All you have to do, all you have to do is receive it. You can do that right where you're sitting. A simple prayer. First of all, confess to God your need for it. Confess to your God your lack of it. And then just say, I believe what you've done for me through Christ. I receive that. I receive that to myself. And then commit your life to following after Jesus in loving God and loving others. It's as simple as that. Not easy, but it's as simple as that. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we learn more and more about the depths and the riches of your amazing love, that it might only be reflected in us and in our love for other people. That it might be reflected in your church, in a community that right now so desperately needs to see love. And Lord, I pray that even as we make a commitment to love everyone always, you would shine the spotlight in our own hearts where we don't love everyone, where we don't love always. Would you help us, Lord? And by identifying those moments, Lord, may we turn away from those sins, may we repent of those sins, and may we come to you to provide for us the love that we lack in those situations, whatever it is. Father, I pray for our church that we would be a church that's defined not by the kind of love the rest of the world would, uh, would, would claim, but by the true agape love as demonstrated in Jesus Christ, a sacrificial love, a selfless love. Father, for those who are here today who have not received that, I pray that today might be the day. And it's in the name of Jesus, the one who came to give us love, that we pray. Amen.